Today, we go to an ancient land, an ancient land and castle that has seen the likes of William Wallace and Robert the Bruce, King James I through the sixth, Bonnie Prince Charlie, and Mary, Queen of Scots, a place that still shows the scars of war and the ghosts of its residents still roam its halls, and none other than an ancient Gothic church and cemetery nestled in the shadow of the castle. It's real. It's one of my all-time favorites. Today, we will find what lies beneath the stones, bones, and shadows. Hi friends and taffophiles, it's Lachelle. My travel buddy today is my good friend Callum Wark. Thanks for joining me today, Callum. Pleasure, Lachelle. That introduction made me feel all excited and <laughs> missing home a little bit, you know. <laughs> exactly. It's good to be here though, it's good to be here. Thank you. So hey, tell everybody where your home is. So I am born and raised in Glasgow. Well, Born in Glasgow and raised in a little town just out of Glasgow called Larkholm in ah. Scotland. Awesome! <laughs> Scotland, who would have guessed? <laughs> Anybody listening is like, what? Today someone thought I was from Russia, so... Oh, in fact, really? And yesterday someone thought I was from... He said, they said, where are you from? Are you from India or Pakistan? <laughs> and I said, oh, just a little, a little bit north of there. <laughs> At least they didn't say Ireland. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> So in this episode, we are talking about a famous castle, Stirling Castle in Scotland. The quick backstory is my husband, Brad, and I took a cruise together in 2012, and we sailed from New York to Nova Scotia and then sailed across the North Atlantic to Ireland, Scotland, and then to England. So we spent just one day anchored in Scotland. It was like the best and the worst all at once because it was only one day. But we made the most of it and saw as much as we could. So we sailed into Greenock and we woke up so early for our first glimpse of Scotland. We were going to be sailing in and got up at the crack of dawn and went out on the balcony and just watched our first glimpses of Scotland sailing in and... Watched the sun come up, and we sailed into port, and it was kind of a full circle journey, so to speak, for us, because some of our ancestors had sailed from Scotland, from that exact same port, across to America, and we were sailing from America across into that port, mm -hmm. and that was in 1774, and it was just so cool. We could just picture them getting on the ship and looking back at Scotland and the home that they loved with all the anticipation of mm -hmm. coming to America and what that would be like and what their new lives in America would be like. So maybe that was one of the reasons we felt so connected to Scotland. We just 
did. When we were there, we just felt like we had been there before, like we had even lived there. What do you think, Callum? Is there a reason maybe why we did? I mean, do you believe in ancestor memories or maybe something in your DNA that makes you feel that way about a place where your ancestors lived? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a little bit different for, for me, I guess, because like in America, everyone's got ancestors that are from elsewhere, you know? Mm -hmm. Whereas for me, for going back years and years and years, you know, um, in our family history, it's all pretty much Scotland and a little bit of Northern Ireland. But yeah, I mean, the amount of times where I've been here and people have said to me, as soon as they meet me, they're like, oh, you're from Scotland. And then they'll immediately feel drawn because they've got a great-great-grandfather. <laughs> they'll claim to be half Scottish, even though it's their great-great-great-great-grandfather that was born there. And they're saying, oh, I'm half Scottish. <laughs> we all want to tell you all our <laughs> Scottish heritage. That's probably like the first thing I think we told you is like, we're Scottish too. Like, <laughs> but, but that um, port in Greenock, I, I used to, I had a job for a little while that every morning I would wake up at like half four in the morning and then oh. um, I would get the train from my little town, Larkall, to Glasgow and then from Glasgow to, to Greenock. Oh. And then I would walk from the train station to the to the area where I worked and it was right along, right along the um, the water there. So it was every morning I would yeah. see the, the the sunrise right there in Greenock as well. Oh. And that's so I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. And it is yeah. it's beautiful there. Yeah, loved it. And we also went through Glasgow, so oh yeah, I can at least picture where you're <laughs> from. We've got a lot of Scottish heritage on his side and on mine. Do you think that? Most people that go to Scotland just kind of feel that way or just like, oh, this is just the, you know, the place. It's, you feel grounded to it. You feel the ancientness of it. or Yeah, I, I definitely have valued the history of Scotland since I've left Scotland. Mm -hmm. And it's when I go back home that I realise about like all the, the ancient architecture and, you know, the beautiful scenery. And in fact, today I was, I met a guy who said to me that he's got a grandfather that came from Scotland and I told him that I was doing this podcast with oh. you and then he was like well let me know once you've done it and I'll, I'd love to listen to it you know so we've got, got another another got listener, listener. <laughs> <laughs> I love it well for Brad and I we just felt like we had come home so we took a tour and we went to Luss and Loch Lomond mm -hmm. and to Stirling Castle and we of course loved the castle and I know you've been there too mm -hmm. um what's your thoughts kind of about the castle well Stirling was the capital of Scotland for a long time before Edinburgh and um, became the capital and when you're there and you're visiting the castle and you're learning about the history you definitely feel proud to have that be part of your history so yeah, yeah I absolutely love Stirling Castle and that's probably the place, like, if, if someone's going to be in Scotland for a day or so, I would say go to Stirling before mm -hmm. I would say go to Edinburgh, before I would mm -hmm. say go to... There are still tourists that go to Stirling Castle, but it's a, a little bit more special, I think, than, than Edinburgh and, and Glasgow. We were really glad that we did find this tour that did it, and it wasn't through the ship or anything. We just found a guy, and his name was Patrick. Somebody was saying Edinburgh, and he was like, <laughs> I do Americans always like Edinburgh. Edinburgh or Edinburgh. I get Edinburgh. Edinburgh. A lot as well. Edinburgh. So, oh. 
But um, just just on um, Stirling Castle, I had a so I, I served my mission from a church in New Zealand, mm. and um, there was a man from New Zealand that I became very very close with him and his wife. His name is Nehana Jacob. He's actually we we named our son after him. So my son is Eosefa Nehana Jacob. Uh, work and um, when he came, he, he had a a business trip, I suppose, to um, to England. He was uh, speaking at a university in England, and he says, oh, "I definitely need to come up and see you." So we went down and met him, picked him up in England. <laughs> people in New Zealand are a lot bigger, you know, than people in the UK are small people, you know. Mm-hmm. So we had this tiny little car that it was me and I think two or three of my brothers, and then. Nathan and Jacob and when he saw the car he started laughing he was like Callum how am I supposed to fit in there with you guys <laughs> and all this luggage but we took him up to, to, to Scotland and we took him to to Stirling Castle and I didn't tell him anything to do with the history I just mm-hmm. says okay this is this is a place that we'll go we'll go and we'll get some steak pie or some haggis as well while we're there <laughs> at a pub first of all I took him to the Robert the Bruce monument mm-hmm. And that is looking over a field that we're about to, we're going to talk about a little yeah. bit later. And he stood there and he says, he says, Callum, I feel a strong, the wairu the is strong here. The wairu in Maori means the spirit, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And, I, and I, he says, what's the history of this place? What happened here? <laughs> and that's where one of our most famous battles took place, you know. And um, yeah. where we You're fought. You're like, oh yeah, it does. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Spirit is strong. Yeah. So I told them all about that. And then it, I, I just thought it was amazing that someone that didn't have that DNA connection mm-hmm. to, to Scotland was still able to stand on that ground and know without mm-hmm. being told that something historic yeah. and pretty special to, to my people happened there. Yeah. So that, that's, that's yeah. one of the reasons why I feel a strong connection to, to Stirling yeah. as well. Yeah, it's really amazing. Stirling Castle is located in central Scotland. It's one of the largest and most important castles in Scotland and to our people. The castle sits on top of Castle Hill on what's known as a crag. And it's surrounded on three sides by steep cliffs, giving it a strong defensive position, obviously very strategic location Mm -hmm. um, for castles. And it's guarded in the farthest downstream crossing of the River Forth, um, which made it an important fortification in the area from the earliest times. The Stirling Castle is first mentioned in history around the year 1110, and many royal dramas <laughs> unfolded there. Stirling Castle is also one of the most used of the many Scottish royal residences, a beautiful palace as well as a fortress. Most of the main buildings of the castle date from the 14 and 1500s, a few structures remain from the 1300s, while the outer walls fronting the town date from the early 1700s. So they were constantly adding on to it over the centuries. Mary, Queen of Scots, was born and lived in the royal palace as a child and was crowned here in 1543. Later, in 1566, Mary's son, the future James VI, was baptized here. The fireworks display that ended the celebrations was the first recorded use of fireworks in Scotland. Oh, Did you know that? I didn't. <laughs> in turn, James VI had the Chapel Royal built for the baptism of his first son, Prince Henry. 
A three-day celebration followed, but Henry died before inheriting the throne. Stirling Castle was besieged repeatedly, at least eight times during the War of Independence. It was constantly fought over and changed hands a number of times between the Scottish and the English. The last attempt was in 1746, when Bonnie Prince Charlie unsuccessfully tried to take the castle. Stirling Castle has been likened to a huge brooch clasping the highlands and lowlands together, and whoever controlled it was pretty much in control over the crossing of the River Forth. It was an important stronghold. Today it remains a great symbol of Scottish independence and national pride. There were some very bloody battles waged nearby. Will you give us some of the history? Yeah, so um, the Battle of Stirling Bridge and William Wallace. Stirling's famous landmark stands above the fields where William Wallace led his troops to victory at the Battle of Stirling Bridge and tells the story of the, the patriot and martyr who became Scotland's national hero. William Wallace, born in 1272 and died in 1305. Um, I'm sure everyone's seen the movie Braveheart and I might break your heart a little bit because some of it is a little bit inaccurate. Um, <laughs> but following impossible demands for military service from Edward I, King of Scotland, John Beloyal, uh, forged what could become known as the Old Alliance with France prompting the First War of Scottish Independence. The Battle of Dunbar, which happened in 1296, the English achieved a decisive victory that saw the overthrow of the Beloyal regime. The Battle of Dunbar was a disaster for the Scots and saw over a hundred high-status prisoners taken, with the arrival of Edward I and the main English army on the 28th of April 1296. Dunbar Castle surrendered to the English. In the weeks that followed, most of the central and southern Scotland came under Edward's control, with key castles, including Stirling, being handed over without a fight. So you can see there how castles are so important with mm-hmm. what, is, what is won or lost in battle. Robert the Bruce and his father both supported the invasion of the English. It is thought because they wanted to gain the crown for themselves. Despite the English victory at Dunbar, they were quite disappointed when Edward Longshanks himself took over the reign of Scotland and ruled it as a province for 10 years. The wars of Scottish independence had seemingly ended, but just 10 months later, William Wallace would kill William de Helsrig, High Sheriff of Lanark, who apparently had killed his sweetheart. So that part's a little true. That part's true, yes, <laughs> that part's true. Don't stand in between a Scottish man and his and his, his bonny wee lass. <laughs> <laughs> a price was put on William Wallace's head, so Wallace took the bold course and raised the Scottish standard and started an uprising. The wars of Scottish independence continued. William Wallace was a guerrilla war against the English, which reached its high point at the Battle of Stirling Bridge, in 1297. According to Walter Guisborough, when emirates were sent to the Scots, Wallace reputedly responded with, we're not here to make peace, but to do battle and to defend ourselves and liberate our kingdom. Let them come on and we shall prove this to their very beards. That just always gives me goosebumps whenever I hear that. (laughs) William Wallace, he wasn't scared of any man. Yeah, he was intense, and you can't help but just love him. I think everybody loves William Wallace, right? <laughs> he just was such a fierce warrior and such a patriot. 
The English army was far larger than the Scottish forces, so Wallace and the other Scottish leader, Andrew Murray, had to be cleverer. The two armies were on opposite sides of the River Forth. The English could only reach the Scots by crossing a very narrow wooden bridge, mm. uh, uh, which is Stirling Bridge. Mm -hmm. On the other side of the bridge, the Scots were waiting. They let some of the English army across the bridge and then they attacked. So they trapped the English soldiers against the, the bend of the river. The rest of the English army couldn't get over the bridge to help, which meant the bridge was too crowded for the English soldiers to escape over. So the Scots took the opportunity to take it to them, so to speak. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and it's really impressive, like, there's a lot of battles and others that we'll talk about where the Scots were outnumbered, so they mm -hmm. had to be very strategic. In fact, there's one example that I want to say right now is Scotland used to be part of Norway before even all of this happened. Mm -hmm. And then once Norway had almost, like, not forgotten about, but... When the English were trying to invade Scotland, the Norwegians were like, hey, no, this is their turf, you know? <laughs> so they came and tried to reclaim what was theirs. And this is one of the reasons why the thistle is our national flower, is because the Norwegians would come over and they tried to use the nighttime, they tried to be strategic. Mm -hmm. But they didn't know how strategic us Scots were, <laughs> because they tried to attack us and kill us in their sleep. Uh. But where the Scots had camped, was surrounded in a field surrounded with, with thistles. <laughs> Which are very stickery. Which, yeah, exactly. It's like <laughs> a bunch of little needles poking you, which is horrible. So they took off their shoes to try and sneak up on the Scots in the middle of the night. And one of them stepped on a thistle and let out a whale in the middle of, <laughs> middle of the night, which woke was an alarm to the Scots. Yeah. They woke up and ended that <laughs> that little, little battle right there oh, and then. Oh, wow, I love that. So that's, that's one of the reasons uh, legend has it as to why the, the thistle is our national flower and oh, an I example of our strategic thinking in battle. Yeah. So what happened after the battle? The battle was a great victory, but it came at a cost. Andrew Murray, Wallace's co-commander, was badly injured in the battle and died soon after. Mm. So King Edward I was furious at losing. He took personal control over an English army and marched north to find and beat Wallace. The next year, Wallace and Edward would meet at the Battle of Falkirk. So the English army greatly outnumbered Wallace's men, and in a pitched battle at Falkirk in 1298, Edward Longshanks annihilated the Scots' battalions and Wallace became a fugitive for seven years. <sighs> so while in Glasgow in 1305, he was betrayed and taken to London, where he was tried for treason in Westminster Hall. I don't like this part. <laughs> He was subject to the English ritual, which was supposed to ensure that the guilty could not rise again on Judgment Day, the ultimate vengeance. Being drawn and quartered, Wallace was drawn behind horses for five miles or so, then hung, stretched, disemboweled, castrated, and his heart, lungs and organs were torn out, and then he was finally beheaded and quartered. It's horrible, isn't it? So his head was spiked on oh. London Bridge and fragments of his body distributed among several Scottish cities oh. as a grim reminder of the price of revolt. Can you imagine? Oh, <laughs> your city is like, here's the leg of William Wallace so you guys won't uprise anymore. Yep. Oh. So Wallace's left side upper torso 
was left on Stirling Bridge as a warning to others. There's a legend that tells that it was secretly removed by monks and given a Christian burial in Cambus Kenneth Abbey. Had you heard that he's buried there at Cambus Kenneth? Yes, I had heard that before. Um, have you been there to... I've, I've not been there. I um, wish I would have known because, well, we probably wouldn't have had time to go there anyway, but next time... You've got to go back, that's all it means. We're going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hiding in your suitcase next time you guys go home. <laughs> so there's an incredible monument for William Wallace. It's the tower that you talked about before and it stands 67 meters or 220 feet high made of sandstone, built in the Victorian Gothic style. It was completed in 1869 and stands on the Abbey Craig above Cambuskenneth Abbey, where perhaps a portion of his remains are buried and from which Wallace was said to have watched the gathering of the army of King Edward I just before the Battle of Stirling Bridge in 1297. Visitors to the monument can climb the 246 step spiral staircase to the viewing gallery inside the monument's crown, which provides expansive views of the Ochil Hills, the Fourth Valley, and Stirling Castle. It's an amazing place, and the number of artifacts believed to have belonged to Wallace are on display inside the monument, including the Wallace Sword, a five foot four inches or 1.63 meters long sword. It's like Wait. as tall as your wife. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so he must have been a big man. Yeah. Weighing almost three kilograms or seven pounds. Inside is also a Hall of Heroes, a series of busts of famous Scots, effectively a small National Hall of Fame. Okay. My, my face will be in there one day. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it will. It is really striking and you can easily see it from the castle as well, rising mm -hmm. above the trees there. And so as you approach the castle, there is a statue of Robert the Bruce. Robert the Bruce. <laughs> the story then continues with him, right? Yes. And this is one of my main gripes when it comes to Braveheart. Mm -hmm. It sort of portrays him as a bit of a coward. Mm. Robert the Bruce was not a coward. That's, no, he wasn't. <laughs> he, he was born in 1274, and Robert was one of the most famous warriors of his generation and led Scotland during the first war of Scottish independence against England. He fought successfully during his reign to regain Scotland's place as an independent country. In 1298, Bruce became a guardian of Scotland, and after an argument with John Common, his only rival for the Scottish throne, Robert stabbed him to death in a church in Dumfries. He was excommunicated for this sacrilege, but despite this, shortly afterwards he claimed the throne and was crowned at Scone on March 25th, 1306. The year following his coronation, Bruce was deposed by Edward Longshanks' army and forced to flee to an island off the coast of Ireland. His wife and daughters were taken prisoner and three of his brothers were murdered. Oh. It is said in a story known to all Scots that while in hiding, he watched a spider swing from one rafter to another, time after time, an attempt to anchor its web. It failed six times. But at the seventh attempt, the spider finally succeeded, and Bruce took this to be an omen and resolve to struggle on. So had you heard that story as a child? 
growing up all the time, you hear, heard that story. Yeah. If at first you don't succeed, try, 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 try again. again. <laughs> That's awesome. I assumed that you would have heard that yeah. a lot of times. My mother, that, that, I remember her telling me that quite a few times oh. growing up. That's a good story. But Bruce then returned to Scotland and they launched a war against the English. Edward I was furious at Bruce, but Longshanks died on a northward march to defeat the rebellious Scots. The successor to the English throne was Edward II. He was completely unprepared for what he would face. King Edward Longshanks had been a strong military leader, and King Edward II, well, he wasn't as much. <laughs> he had many personal problems and vices. It was said that he was a weakling and a fool, not at all the man that his father was. Yeah. Also, he neglected his castles north of the border, and Robert's army took full advantage of that. One by one, the Scots took them back, and Stirling Castle mm. was one of the last remaining castles that the English held. The Scots laid siege to it for four months, so the English mm. king had to invade Scotland and try to take hold of Stirling, or look like a coward in failure. He summoned his army of feudal knights, who didn't expect to face more than a ragged band of Scottish guerrillas. <laughs> Meanwhile, Robert the Bruce prepared for the battle of his life. Bruce had learned his guerrilla tactics from his time in battle with William Wallace, and he used these tactics to his advantage. Oh. So the Battle of Bannockburn. Battle took place on the 23rd of June 1314 by the River Bannockburn, and straight out of the gate, Sir Henry de Boyne, a young English knight, made a fatal mistake. Wearing heavy armour and mounted on a warhorse, he charged Bruce, confident that he could win this little battle by taking out its leader before it had even started. Not a good plan. Not a good plan. The Bruce was on a smaller horse, and as Sir Henry charged him, he steered his horse aside, stood up his stirrups and chopped his axe through Henry's passing helmet. <gasps> And his head was rapidly dispatched. <laughs> <laughs> ah, but can you imagine the roar of triumph from the Scottish soldiers who were watching their king and leader and just like the fire and energy and absolutely, you know, just pumped him up. And what an epic beginning to the Battle of Bannockburn. I read that the English came to the battle with about 2,000 armored horsemen and 15,000 foot soldiers, and the Scots had only 500 horsemen and 7,000 foot soldiers, less than half the men. They were totally outnumbered. Absolutely, that's where the, the strategic war tactics come mm -hmm. in. And Robert the Bruce, what he done is he used his geography to his advantage, mm -hmm. forcing the English to attempt crossing two large boggy streams. Mm -hmm. So he used Wallace's methodology. He divided his troops into shelterings or units. Each shelterin was composed of an crown formation mm -hmm. of close-knit foot soldiers with spears facing outwards like a giant human hedgehog. <laughs> he ordered his pits to be dug north, mm. north side of Bannock and covered them with branches. Mm -hmm. He made sure that the geography was on his side. If the English got across the Bannockburn, then they had to contend with the marshes and the river forth hemming them. The only way to cross the Bannock directly was the battleground that was a very narrow ford. The English were faced to form themselves into a column to negotiate the ford, which gave the Scots a clear advantage. The bloodbath that ensued 
meant that the Scots won the field on the first day. The next day, the English decided to cross the Bannockburn furthest east, which was a disaster. The piece of land that Edward chose to fight on was hemmed by two rivers and was impossibly boggy. Mm -hmm. The English knight was led away and his army retreated to a haste and panic. Robert the Bruce's superior military strategy had secured their victory. Mm. So the Scots re-established the independent Scottish monarchy and with its possession of Stirling Castle, it was a huge turning point and would remain Bruce's legacy and his finest hour. So although it did not bring an end to the war for independence, as victory would only secure 14 years later, Bannockburn is still a major landmark in Scottish history. Scotland's independence was officially recognised by the Treaty of Edinburgh, which Robert I and Edward III in 1328, ending a three-decade war for independence. The following year, 1329, Robert the Bruce died after suffering an illness some described as leprosy. Hmm. He was just 54 years old. Following the fashion for royalty, he was buried in multiple places. His chest was sawn open and his heart and internal organs were removed. Hmm. The guts were buried. <laughs> it's lovely, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking uh, it's really not that different than what happened to William Wallace. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Only he was dead already, I guess. <laughs> and so his guts basically were buried near his death place. Mm -hmm. His corpse entered in uh, Dunfermline Abbey and his heart placed inside a metal urn to be worn around the neck of Sir James Douglas, who promised to take it to the Holy Land. That was some kind of necklace. I mean, a heart isn't just, you know, like a little locket. <laughs> I, just, I don't know. I'm just picturing this huge thing around this guy's neck. Yep. <laughs> That's some bling. <laughs> he promised to take it to the Holy Land, but unfortunately, Sir Douglas never made it there. He got sidetracked and went to fight the Moors in Spain, where he was killed. Mm. Before his attackers reached him, though, Douglas was said to have thrown the urn containing the king's heart and yelled, lead on, Braveheart, I'll follow thee. His heart was the original Braveheart. Yeah, you could look <laughs> at it like that, eh? So his heart was soon returned to Scotland, but its location was forgotten until a team of archaeologists discovered it in 1921. Oh. And it's now entered in Melrose Abbey. Wow. The history is so insane. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. When we toured the castle, we heard of some burials that were up there that had been found in 1997. Dr. Joe Buckberry, a Bradford University battle trauma expert, believes the skeletons date somewhere from 1296 to 1357, so which fits right in the times of the Battle of Bannockburn and the Wars for Independence. There are nine of them, and they consist of seven males, one female, and a baby. They were found by a team of archaeologists in the oldest part of the castle still standing, a lost 12th century royal chapel that was dedicated to St. Michael the Archangel by King Alexander I. The area was being excavated at the time as part of Historic Scotland's project to refurbish the castle's 16th century palace. It's just crazy to me to think that it goes so far back to the 1100s. Yeah. There just isn't yeah, those kinds of things it? here. Yeah. <laughs> I've been to a few Native American ruins and things like that here that date back to that time, you know, in America, but there's just 
not the kind of things like you find in England and Scotland and that go that far back. In one case, a man thought to be aged between 25 and 35 had 44 fractures on his skull. The tests carried out at the University of Bradford also showed the woman was aged between 36 and 45, and she had suffered 10 fractures to the right side of her skull, resulting from two heavy blows. Oh, jeez. Probably a poleaxe or a mace or something like that. Yeah. Neat square holes through the top of her skull also suggested she had fallen and possibly been killed with a weapon such as a war hammer. Since they were square holes. I don't know. <laughs> One set of remains, known as Skeleton 190, were from a young man aged between 16 and 20 who showed signs of a stab wound in the chest. He was also struck on the base of his skull, on the jaw, the collarbone, and ribs. The skeletons had mostly suffered from blunt trauma injuries, with some showing evidence of malnutrition, consistent with periods when the castle was under siege. One male skeleton had more than 100 fractures, and at the castle they have a very interesting exhibit, did you see this mm -hmm. when you were here? Yeah. That shows what they think that the man would have looked like, and they used a complex Computer technology is kind of like an episode of Bones where Angela uses her <laughs> fancy, you know, computer technology to reconstruct what a person looked like by their skeletal structure. They say he was a stocky, strong man that showed signs of having been trained in battle and horses by his skeletal structure. Mm. So the way his ankles kind of turned in, you know, his legs were right. bowed. And then it also showed that... While he was still growing, he had lifted and swung really heavy things. So okay. they figured that he was training to be a knight and a warrior. I thought that that was really interesting, all that they could tell by the way his yeah, that's amazing. skeleton was formed. Possibly a jouster. He had a large healing wound on his forehead. So he had lived through that wound and looked like he had died by several blows to the head. Also, it wasn't certain where the deceased were from or who they were fighting for, but since they had been buried beneath this floor of the royal chapel, which was unusual, it suggested that they were important people. Bodies would normally be buried in a kirkyard like the ones right below the castle, so this suggests that the people were killed during times when it was too dangerous to venture beyond the castle walls. So, kind of interesting. I wish we knew their stories. Yeah. So, with all the drama, murder, and mayhem, I think there may be a few ghosts in Sterling. Absolutely. You hear about, especially, as you said before, it's such an old country with an old history. Mm -hmm. And you hear all the, the yeah. ghost stories. Spirits are strong. I, I, I went to a, a primary school that was a Victorian primary school and really? very old building. Um, <laughs> Which is normal, you yeah. know, for us. But then I come over here and realize it's older than the United States, you know. Um, but well, the primary school I went to is 200 years old. <laughs> it's no big deal. That, our school had, um, that was the rumored to be ghosts in our school. And, uh, you know, and every yeah. town has their own ghost stories. And Stirling <laughs> is definitely, I mean, a, a place with such history with wars mm. and things like that. Yeah. And so many deaths. Um, there's, there's many rumours of ghosts that go around. Yeah. Um, but almost all of Scotland's castles have stories of ghosts. 
And as you can imagine, a few stories of the paranormal activity mm-hmm. when you are in that area. Castle, battlefields, kirkyard, um, all of them nearing a thousand years old, you know. Can't imagine. So the best known ghosts of Stirling Castle, though, is the Green Lady. A phantom said to appear at the most unexpected times and places in the castles. She's wearing a green gown. Thus the Green Lady. So I read about her on the castle blog, and it said that they'd heard reports of several forms of the Green Lady spotted here at the castle. In one tale, she appears at the top of the steps to what used to be the military base of the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders. She was seen gliding down the steps in flowing green finery, devastatingly beautiful. Luckily, she seems to have been in a benevolent mood that day and simply passed through the young soldier who spotted her. So there's some different tales of her origin, but the one that stems from some historical evidence is that she was a young Highland girl who attended the castle as a servant of Mary, Queen of Scots. She was said to be highly superstitious and was convinced that a terrible fate would befall Mary on the night of 13 September, 1561. And the story goes that the girl was sure a terrible fire would break out in Mary's room at the castle. Mm. She vowed to remain awake all night to guard the queen, but couldn't quite manage that. (laughs) In her drowsiness, she falls asleep and the candle that she had lit to light the queen's bedside set fire to the bed curtains. The young attendant tried to awake Queen Mary and to put out the flames. Eventually, both of the unconscious queen and the girl were rescued. However, only the queen survived the traumatic event. The girl died from her wounds and despite her noble efforts, only the colour of her dress remains in memory, and it is by that colour that she is remembered. Some say the Green Lady haunts the halls of Stirling out of guilt for the Queen's near-death experience. Others say she is merely a lost soul, unable to move on because of the trauma of her death. Mm-hmm. Regardless, it does not appear that her life poses any indication of a malicious intent against the living. So the fear of the Green Lady likely comes from the belief that she is an omen of misfortune. Yeah, I read that there are superstitions that say if you look her in the face that you will die soon. But I don't know how they tested that out. (laughs) Someone's like, I saw the Green Lady and looked her in the face. I'll be watching for me to die tomorrow. So also the blog post from the castle website says that the castle reports to have records to show that this fire took place but have no written evidence of the existence of the girl or her foretelling of her own terrible death. Still, her story has become legendary. One day, a castle worker descended the stone steps toward the room at the base of the prince's tower where it is said that the green lady resides, and the door handle mysteriously turned by itself. Mm. A few months later, they returned to find some of their uniform rails tipped over. When they went to investigate, the windows began to rattle, which made them wonder if they had overstayed their welcome in the Green Lady's domain. (laughs) There are even some stories that Mary, Queen of Scots herself, is said to still haunt the castle. She's even been linked to the ghost of the Pink Lady. Mm. She's seen wearing a flowing pink gown, often walking from the castle to the nearby church of Holyrood. She's sometimes seen as a pink aura, and is accompanied by the feeling of longing or unrequited love to the people walking around the grounds. 
Other stories suggest that the Pink Lady is a widow who escaped while the castle was under siege by Edward I in 1304. She is said to be looking for her husband or lover who lost his life during the battle. Hmm. But the most active ghost of Stirling Castle they call the Highland Ghost. <laughs> Staff and visitors report that they hear phantom footsteps in the governor's mm. block and that they believe to come from one of the empty chambers upstairs. Staff and visitors alike have often seen this apparition. He wears the full traditional kilt and all, mistaken for a tour guide on many occasions. <laughs> visitors have been shocked when they approach him and he simply turns and walks away. Vanishing in front oh. of their eyes. Whoa. In 1935, the Highland Ghost was apparently captured on camera by an architect who was carrying out some surveying for upcoming building work. And the phantom image also appears on the negative too. Oh, wow. So, could the Highlander be responsible for the footsteps and noises heard around the castle? Possibly. It sounds like quite a few people have seen him. Yeah. It's not just. And it's, it's interesting because when you're in Stirling Castle, everybody, all the employees, you know, they're all dressed up in the old gear and then yeah. the men are in the kilt and things like that, you know. The so, jester's costumes, the. Exactly. Yeah, so there would of... probably be a lot of people that have maybe seen the ghost. <laughs> and just, I could have seen the ghost. And just walked on by thinking, I didn't you know. know. Yeah. Wow. There is also said to be the spirit of the black lady who haunts the back walk down by the old kirkyard. We don't know much about her, but she is rumoured to be a nun in her black habit, mm. although no one knows why she lingers in this spot. It's said that she creates a foreboding atmosphere in anyone wandering this path at night. So, did she have a forbidden love? Is she out searching for him? Was he killed? Wait, she was a nun? So was her lover a priest? What, who is she looking for? I have so many questions. Well, okay, either way, I'm not so sure I'd like to run into her, especially in the dark. Thank you, Callum, for being my co-host today. We are going to end with the ghosts. But I know all of you want to hear more of his wonderful accent. So make sure to join us for the next episode where we explore the Holyrood Kirk, and the cemeteries surrounding it. Stirling Castle, a thousand years of stories for the stones to tell. I am dying to go back now that I know even more about it. The castle and surrounding area has so much history. You feel the struggles for power, brutality, deaths, losses, but also so much patriotism, triumph, pride, and sacrifice. Is there any wonder why so many spirits linger in this place? I also feel that there are far more stones, bones, and shadows here than I ever dreamed. And that's what lies beneath. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on Facebook, like us on Instagram, and leave us a comment. We love to hear from our listeners. <laughs>